Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Colthard and alongside me, well, virtually, is the one and only Eddie Jordan. Ah! Did I come in too soon there, David? You, well, look, you always are known to have come too soon and you stay too long. There's a man, you know, I've heard that about you, heard that about you often. That's not very clever. Well, look, you've, for, for a man who's not very clever, you've done incredibly well and you've done so well I've got to say congratulations, EJ, because you have got a man on our show this week who's sitting alongside you, who I don't think arguably is the most successful designer in Formula One history, although someone might be able to link some other, I don't know, some other chap to lots of success. It's the one and only Adrian Newey. Hey, hey guys. Good to see you. Yeah, well, look, it's great, Adrian, to have you on board. No, thank you. No, I was really enjoying it. It's down, down in Cape Town with EJ, we're cycling buddies and well that's all actually really down here um, not allowed to say anymore no, exactly but uh no it's great to be down here good little motor racing crew down here jody schecter etc etc so really fun yeah well um, i'm sure ej is down at the bottom of your list of favorite people to hang out with but we really do appreciate and formula for success that you are in the same room as them for the next 45 minutes or so. So, EJ, as you're right beside Adrian, um, I'll let you fire off with um, this discussion. Well, as you rightly introduced him, um, I'm trying to keep away from the activities. We have chats like this after we go cycling uh, up Chapman's Peak. And um, the last time we did that, we had Mike Rutherford from Genesis. And I think when he was on our program, DC, he, he actually uh, relayed to everyone there about um, the stories that we had in terms of Formula One stories made everybody in rock and roll look almost timid and saintly. So um, I'm sure following on that basis, we're looking for stories rather than hardcore motor racing story with, you know, statistics and what he won here and what he didn't win there. I want to know more about Adrian Newey, the man, where he went to school, how many kids he's got, what he's doing for the future. Incidentally, in about 10 days time, He's going to be 65, and we want to know what is he planning for his retirement. <laughs> no longer a Beatles song. He'll never yeah. retire. So, DC, you far ahead first, and we'll take it from there. Okay, well, look, Adrian, then, I think that is a very valid point. A lot of people, of course, whether they're hardcore, long-term followers of Formula One or whether they're the Netflix generation who, who've just tuned in recently, but they, they won't know your backstory. And I know a little bit about it because, you know, I've had the privilege of working with you since way back when I was a test driver at Williams. So without sort of, you know, unraveling any 
tears from your past. Maybe you can just sort of uh, explain your journey from young man with a vision towards being involved in motorsport. Or, or was that the case? You know, at what point did you decide motor racing is where I want to be? Uh, that, that bit's easy. And I don't, I don't really know why, but from about the age of 10, then I decided I wanted to be involved in motor racing as a designer and um, kind of, you know, I used to make these little Tamiya model scale kits. And, and then um, after a while, when, by the time I was about 12, I was bored of making other people's designs. So I started sketching and making my own, own models out of bits of bent aluminium and fiberglass and stuff. And that kind of really cemented the whole thing. So then, yeah, I went to school, got booted out of school, went to the local technical college, got into girls and bikes, almost lost the, almost lost that direction, but came back to it and um, went to uni on the basis that studied aeronautical engineering on the basis that aircraft are closer to racing cars than any other um, kind of discipline. Wrote around to all the addresses I could, teams I could find addresses for when I was, uh, when I graduated, this is 1980, so well before the internet. And um, generally got the catch twenty two answer of don't hire people without experience. So I, had, I didn't honestly know what I was going to do when um, Harvey Bossislate from Fittipaldi at the time rang me up and, and luckily I was in and, and said, "Can you come for an interview?" So I rode up on my um, Ducati up to Reading from Southampton, uh, sat in the little porter cabin, and uh, Harvey came out and said, "Oh, you've always got a motorbike." I'm oh, sorry, I was in my leathers. What bike have you got? And I said, a, a Ducati 900SS, um, which is actually will money from my grandmother. That my parents were really pissed off that I bought that bike. Anyway, there we go. And uh, they said, oh, I've got a Motoguzzi Le Mans, which is the big rival. Can I have a go on a Duke? So I said, yes, of course, be my guest. He, he went off around the industrial estate for about, disappeared for about 15 minutes. Came back, and in those days, 1980, the, the helmets all had these huge, the full face, but they had this, they showed you a whole face. And uh, he came back, big green on his face, took his helmet off and said, when can you start? So that wow. was my one and only interview in my career. That is brilliant. That's not necessarily the way that most, <laughs> not a good recommendation to everyone nowadays. That is a long time ago, 40 odd years ago. That sounds like the sort of way you would do uh, a job interview, um, you know, nicking someone's car or you know, their bike or something. There's a slight difference. The bike actually was returned. In my case, I would probably have gone to the local shop to pawn off the car or something. No, no, listen, stop making me look like a criminal, David. I don't need to work very hard to make that happen. So it's all right, just tranquilo at the moment, guys. Just leave off Eddie Jordan. I mean, he's quite a decent guy. And it's Christmas. We've got to be nice to one another. We've got to find the spirit, not what's in the mug. We've got to find the spirit that's in the glass. Guys, happy Christmas. We're, we're yeah, yeah, happy on. Christmas. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid the glasses are getting empty already. But <laughs> anyway, so we talked about meeting girls. Was girls a problem for you in the beginning or not? Uh, Christ. So I went to this very Dickensian public school called Repton, which was meant to be a big family tradition. I quite recently found out that the family tradition started at my dad, so it wasn't much of a tradition. <laughs> but anyway, my brother went there, then I went there. And I, to be honest, I hated it. I just never enjoyed a, a day at that place, really, apart from when I was tinkering about. Was, they allowed me to bring my go-kart up and tinker about on it, so uh, which is another story in itself. So apart from kind of going over, there's a girls' public school, which is about 10 miles away, so they used to cycle over and kind of try and, you know, play, play with flex, yeah, you know, strut around like a peacock and 
<laughs> try and think of useful, useful chat-up lines, which I was invariably hopeless at. Um, but I did actually start to get on with the, um, the music teacher's daughter. Oh, yeah. And was then caught having a little um, thing with her, if you like. Cuddle is the word. Cuddle is the word, exactly. Okay. That got reported by the music teacher, by her dad, which then got relayed back to my school, which I was summoned for. So apart, but apart from that, at 16, I was effectively completely girl naive. Sorry, but then went absolutely crazy, because then I got kicked out of school, went to the local college, at which point, I'd gone from this very sort of restricted school where it was all boys to kind of complete freedom. And I have to say, and it was 1975, so punk was just starting to come in. And I just went absolutely nuts for about a year and almost failed my, my first year college exams. Well, uh, I can see your love for music. As a total punk head, I'm not sure I can find that looking at you now, but I'm sure it's there somewhere because... Of the three of us here, I must say, I'm the odd one out. I like to be in bed by 10, 10.30 latest. He's only going out at that stage, and I can't imagine what you're up to at that age, that time of the night. But the, the reality is, every night when he comes to my place, he knows what I'm going to say, and it's not exactly the nicest remark, but it actually clears the room very quickly. Fuck off, you lot. <laughs> Get out of my house. It's time for you to all go, basically. So everyone looks at each other because they're not used to that kind of terminology because this is a very well-brought well, up... Well, there's two exceptions. Who's that? Me. Oh, yeah, but he doesn't leave anyway. <laughs> he goes back to his own house, opens a bottle of whiskey and gets trashed. And the next time I'm supposed to be cycling with him, the next morning, he can't put his leg across the saddle. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but by the end of it, I'm, I'm beating your ass. So don't yes, that's that. true. So, look, Adrian, I, we couldn't have you on. and It's great. I love, you know, all of these uh, away from motor racing stories. But I've got to ask, I've got to ask just one motor racing. And then Eddie can can indulge on, um, you know, all the, the sort of off-track stuff. But you've had an incredible career. And this has been an incredible season. I just, I can only imagine that that this, it can't get better than this in terms of, you leading a team of people and you're always at great pains to acknowledge all of the great men and women that are part of your, your design studio. But do, do you pinch yourself and go, well, that's it. I, I surely can never get a clean sweep of, of Grand Prix victories. No one ever has. And, you know, statistically, this is off the charts. It's, it's funny, man. So going into the season, we thought this year was going to be really tough. This, and, and, um, Kind of the way it, it panned out, yeah, never ever expected it. But the funny thing is when you're in it, you're just in it and you're looking forward, you're not really reflecting. So, I don't know, maybe when I look back at this in, in my dotage when I'm being wheeled around in a bath chair, I'll think, yeah, that was actually a cracking year. But at the moment, it's kind of you're just looking forward to 20, or we're on to 24, really. Yeah. So here's the thing then that for any anyone out there who would like to be inside the mind of sports people and people involved in sports, and EJ, you can relate to this as well. We're never satisfied. We we never give ourselves nine out of you know ten out of ten. We might give ourselves nine out of ten, but there's always a feeling that there's more that we can do. I think that's a really interesting one actually. Is that never being satisfied? And I think you know as a sportsman, because effectively as an engineer, I'm in the sports category and as much as you get immediate feedback in competition every couple of weeks or every week now with the way the season's gone and 
Yes. You might think, okay, we've had this fantastic season, broken various records or whatever. The reality is that there's things that, with the car that we feel can be improved. So actually, you're not really thinking about it. That is focusing on things like what are the weaknesses, how can we improve that? And that actually, funny enough, is why Singapore was quite the, the race that we didn't win. It's quite useful for us because we made a complete and utter arse of that, if I'm honest. Um, it exposed some weaknesses in the car, and those. So that's what you really think about: is how can I improve that? How can I, how can I eradicate that for next year and just move forward? And I guess for you as, as a driver, it must have been the same. Where I don't suppose you ever look back and think, "I drove the perfect racer." There's going to be something that you feel that you could have done better. That's that's just the nature. Yeah, I used to keep a, a, a little notepad when I was coming up through karting and the cars where I would give myself a grading out of 10 for my performance over the weekend. And even when I won, I never gave myself 10 out of 10. And sometimes where I'd finished maybe fourth or fifth, I'd give myself a higher grading because I felt I'd maximized the opportunity that I had on that given weekend. And it's what's continually driven me forward. And, you know, I've not operated at the, the same level of success as, uh, you know, as, as yourself, Adrian, in terms of over, you know, the periods of time that you, your chosen skills have been deployed. But I think actually it doesn't matter who we are and what we, we are doing. I think that works for everyone in everyday life. You know, any task that you're given, it's about trying to be the very best that you can be. And you can be satisfied with a job well done. But if you actually think you can't improve on it, then that's almost like giving, giving up on life. It's like saying that there isn't more potential. And that's the thing that drives me forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, you're always searching for perfection, but almost by definition, of course, you never achieve it. I think it's a fair question because a lot of people are talking about um, where is Adrian in terms of relationship to, to Ferrari, whatever happened there, did any approaches happen? Um, and I suppose when you talk about retirement, it just it, it is going to Ferrari, is that on your agenda or could you ever see that happening? And if 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 not... I'd like to know is how many times have you been approached by Ferrari and by who? Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, Ferrari is this is this magic brand that I suppose, in in all honesty, probably everybody in motor racing is always fascinated by and, and tempted to join if there's the opportunity. And I've been approached and, and come close three times now. Um, one of those in IndyCars way back. It's an amazing brand. It has had all this mystique about it. It's effectively the, the Italian national team uh, with all the, the pros and cons that come with that. And the cons are that you are kind of, if you, do, if you don't do a great job, you're absolutely berated and torn apart. Um, of course, if you do do a good job, then you're a national hero. So that, that brings all its own pressures. But, I mean, for me, I've, I have to try to take the passion that side out and, and, and approach it from an engineering side. And the teams I've worked for have been hugely enjoyed. And of course, Red Bull, which is largely in part to your advice as well, David, was um, that's a team I've been at more or less from the start. It's a team that I've been very centrally involved in, in um, developing the engineering side of that, of the team. So it's a team I kind of, feel comfortable with, um, that we all know how we work. I suppose to, to change now, I'm not saying I would never, ever change, because you should never say that, but it would it'd be like walking out on your family. 
because that's that's what it's become. I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic, Adrian, to hear that and and how you've you've helped shape that team. And as I said earlier, you you always recognise the, the 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 team that are you know working within within your group. There, one thing I'm I'm curious to know is the process of designing a racing car. You know, there's several hundred people now involved in putting together a race car for any given season. When you started, there was probably less than 100 people that you were you were dealing with. Does that mean that the workload is so great that you, you just have to keep delegating and delegating and delegating? Or is it still big picture thinking for you and then trusting in those that are deployed to work on, you know, suspension geometries or gearbox configurations or whatever it is that goes into the overall concept of a race car? So when I started in in Formula One in 1988 with Leighton House, then we had a total of five people in the engineering office, including myself, and 50 people in total for the whole team. Um, kind of then through the through the 90s, the teams grew a bit, and then through the the noughties and into today, they they absolutely mushroomed. So I think now we're something something like 250 engineers. So in that sense. It changes, of course, but I've, I've always tried to, as much as possible, delegate the managerial side of, of the engineering so as I can be free to, first and foremost, work with, with all my colleagues, um, the fellow engineers, you know, discuss ideas with them, hope to help to try to develop them, and then allocate time to myself where I can just stand at the drawing board, the last dinosaur, and, and develop my own ideas. And that it's, it's that combination which I absolutely enjoy and, um, and gets me up every day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. While we're on that very subject, both of you, as I know well, are, are people that celebrate life and, and really in, enjoy and embrace the moments while we're here. Both of you have had let's say, let's be frank, you both had near death experiences. Uh, Adrian, you had a cycling accident, which resulted in you having some, you know, uh, some metalwork placed in your, in your skull. Eddie, I've tried to hold the pillow over your head several times and you can, you can discuss the, 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 uh, the, the uh, not as many times as Marie. <laughs> yeah, indeed, Marie, his oh, wife. Marie. Jesus. So, <laughs> she, she's doing it on a daily basis. <laughs> so uh, I, let me, let me just be on that. It could be seen as slightly morbid, but you gentlemen, when you were both faced with your, your very challenging moments over the last several years, 
share with us where you were in your mind and what was the drive and, and, and just your, your appreciation coming out the other side of it. So I don't mind which one of you goes first, as long as it's Adrian. Well, <laughs> I mean, oh, it, are you that, showing favoritism yeah. here, DC? Yeah, that, that cycling accident. I mean, it's, it's all accidents are stupid, but that's a particularly silly one. But I think what, what came out of that was how important people around you are. So I ended up um, with a fractured skull, uh, and luckily we have been with uh, Mandy and my wife and I have been with Bernie and Fabi Eccleston for the previous couple of days. So, so I, was, I was not in a terribly good state. Mandy, Mandy rang Bernie and said, look, this is, this is not looking good. He, he's looking a bit grey. Um, need to get him admitted. So Bernie offered to put his boat on. Uh, he then, his, his ex was... Um, Croatian, we were in Croatia, so he then rang his ex, who ran the prime minister, who ran the head of neurosurgery, who is on holiday in Bosnia or something. But wheels moved to get me admitted very quickly. Um, I was then admitted into into this Croatian uh, hospital in the capital split. Well, I think it's not the capital, but anyway, split. Um, and, and around the back, if you go as a tourist split, then it has a real Italian Mediterranean feel. It's very glamorous. You go to the hospital, it, it, you might as well have been in Stalingrad. It was kind of 1916. It was all all um, kind of porcelain tiles and that smell of disinfectant and absolutely stunning nurses, were, but they were completely brutal. And um, so I was admitted, and about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the, the three wise men came round at the end of my bed, which must have been the, the anaesthetist, the maxofacial guy, and the... Um, the neurosurgeon, and um, all quite young, and, and one of them spoke reasonable English and said, uh, as you know, you've, you've fractured your skull and we need to operate very quickly because otherwise you could lose the use of your eye. And I said, okay, well, what's involved in the, um, in, in the operation? Oh, we cut and we place and everything will be perfect. All right, and, and um, you know, what's the risk of damage to the eye during the operation? Oh, no risk at all. Okay, and uh, what's the risk of uh, brain damage in the operation? Oh, five, maybe 10%. (laughs) At which point I rang Mandy and said, for Christ's sake, get me out of here. And and then again, Bernie and Fabi and Christian and and, uh, Joe Macari in particular, they all swung into action and and, and got me home and, and I was operated on back in the UK. And where did you land with the, how much uh, brain damage did you end up with? Uh, I'm going for about a 7%. Lot. Well, I, I, obviously. <laughs> there are those who say they, and there are those who can say they really can't spot the difference. <laughs> Actually, it could, it could only have, we're all going to Croatia to get to that doctor because based on, on what they did, uh, if you see the results of, uh, of what happened on the track this year, um, we all need to go to the same neurosurgeon, to be very honest with you. David, you included. David, um, you don't need to tell us about the thing because I know you've told us on the podcast about the, the airline crash, and I mean that was totally harrowing. You know, my situation is less dramatic, but nevertheless, at the time, was more frightening because when you're out in the wild Atlantic, and anyone who has ever sailed from Durban to Cape Town, uh, it's called the Roaring Forties. I can promise you, it's wild. It's it, it, the reason why it's called the Roaring Forties because the wind and the tide is coming against you. And you might be only doing one or two knots because everything um, 
it, it, it's, it's quite strange. People don't realize, but the tide is a, a, a multiple times stronger than any wind. So therefore, you have to pay a lot of attention to the tide when you're sailing. And um, the waves were coming right over the top of the boat. I mean, it was just like as if you were at the bottom of a swimming pool. It was horrific. And you never, ever think that you're going to get away with it. But, you know, when you're in a good boat and it's very solid and very well made, they will always survive. And we were um, in, in an Oyster 885, and I know that Adrian is about to take one as well because we're sailors, and that's another common denomination here, um, which hopefully I'd like to see Adrian going around the world. But that, well, that's my little experience. Until you, huh? I wasn't a sailor until you talked me into it. But no, I did talk, talk him into it because I said, Adrian, come and have a few. Then Corsica, Sardinia, and we did a lot of good holidays 10, 12 years ago, and suddenly, you know, it, it's an unbelievable way, and we talked about this in the past. The pressure, particularly on somebody like the drivers, uh, like UDC, like me in a smaller way, um, but, you know, Christian or any uh, like Max, I can see why a boat is so important because once they're on the boat, they can turn the phone off and they're free of all that hysteria and excitement. And so that's one thing that boating does do. It gives you a complete sense of freedom. Yeah. What that confirms is when you're doing that big sail and it was, you know, like being at the bottom of the swimming pool, it confirms to me you're like a cockroach. You just won't die. <laughs> um, I actually, I'll have to think up a suitable word for you, DC, because I have some pictures. I have some pictures of things that you commissioned. And I just hope that we can put it up on the website because when, I'm not sure if you can remember, but the, you commissioned a, a painting of when, with your kilt on, when, when he won his 200th, 200th Grand Prix, and um, you are flashing your willy. I mean, David, have you, have, have you no sense of style, for Christ's sake? I'm, I'm not sure willy is, is the appropriate word. It doesn't do, doesn't do justice to the grandeur of, you know, what it represents. <laughs> I, I, I tell you I, what, I've, you, had painted, I've yeah. seen the size of this drawing. I think you have a very good imagination of the size of yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I think you told told the artist a few porkies, didn't you? <laughs> you? You know, it's like EJ always stands slightly forward in any photograph, so he looks taller than he actually is. We want to know what gave you the license to grow that to the size that it is. I mean, come on, please be here. Well, well, you haven't actually done. I'm a Scotsman. What can yeah. I say? <laughs> you haven't got your kilt on. Uh, do the previous picture so the whole thing is lift the, lift the kilt. Yeah, yeah that's the picture the before. That is DC with a kilt on and celebrating the 200th Grand Prix win. I might tell you that he's actually, after this year, he's added a lot more to it. So, uh, you know, anyone who wins those kind of Grand Prix is, is wild. I'm in the single digits and I know you're double digits, DC. But, um, I mean, it's hard to describe... When he's brown bread and in a box and gone underground, we'll all say, how the hell did he, how did he do that? Because none of us knows. Most of all me. No, it's incredible. But I just want to know, Eddie, how, how do you feel, EJ, to be the least successful of the three people in the podcast here? Not in financial terms. Well, what I want, you might ask, I have an equally good question, DC, <laughs> but I think I'm glad you brought that up because you're trying to humiliate me. But I might remind you that this man here... I'm not trying. I want to. <laughs> well, you're doing a poor job of it. He was in McLaren. He then was in Williams. And then he was in Red Bull. And funny enough, you're exactly the same three people. But he won 215 Grand Prix 
You won 13, and as sure as hell, you never came really that close to winning a world championship, and he's won 25 of them, for Christ's sake. What happened to you along the way? Okay, let me ask you this. If you're not first in the championship, what's the closest you can be to winning it? You're the first of the losers. That's what you were. The answer you're looking for is second. I finished second in the world championship <sighs> to Michael Schumacher. I don't want to be second. Though. I didn't win Grand Prix when everyone else crashed out like you did. Actually, Ron Dennis came to me, your friend and his friend. We're going to talk about Ron in a second. Because he said to me at the race in Monza, uh, when we were on the front row with Mika, and we kind of hounded, but then we had the Honda engine, which was magic. Uh, and that's why I think um, Aston Martin will be strong in the future. But we did win there, and Ron came up to me on the podium, and he said, Jesus, at least you can say you won one race on merit because after that, it was the weirdest compliment I've ever had from well, him. That's, that's normal, Ron. There's always, a bat, there's always a sting in the tail. Do we want a little Ron Dennis story here? Yes. A little Ron Dennis story. So it should be known that when Adrian left Williams, he single-handedly screwed them because they've won absolutely nothing since he left. So he went to McLaren and um, he decided with Ron as a kind of a special character, as we all know, and um, so everything has to be either silver, gray, or black. Um, so Adrian decided, as the chief engineer and aerodynamicist there, decided to paint his office duck egg blue. Whereupon Ron came into the office and he absolutely lost it. He completely, let Adrian tell you how he lost it. Come on. Uh, that, yeah, and so I'd only been there for about two weeks, but I was raising, working crazy hours trying to get the design for the 98 car ready. And, um, and, and the office I inherited was John Barnard's old office, and it was kind of floor-to-ceiling mahogany panels. It was a dark mahogany table. It was a, uh, a black chair. It was really dark brown, dingy carpets. It was just depressing. So, and, so as we were leaving for Hungary, so I went to the Hungary race. So to the factory manager, can you um, brighten it up a bit over the weekend? And I gave him a duck egg blue paint chart and said, put a tan carpet in and change the change the chair for something a bit lighter and, and, and uh, so on and so forth and he got that all done over the weekend came back on Monday and it's it was kind of my office looked out onto the do and so it's like one of those weird postcards where it started out as black and white and, and then somebody's colored bits of it in so my office is now the colored bit and the the sort of frame out into the do was still black and white anyway that evening Ron came in about <clears throat> six o'clock see how it's going on and as he came into the door frame, looked up, I had higher on, and he, he started, he, he didn't say a word. He started, whoa, gulping like a, like a fish, like a goldfish. And as he gulped, he went redder and redder until he went purple. <laughs> and I thought, Christ, he's going to have a heart attack here and now. And eventually, still not a single word, gulping, he spun on his heels and walked out. And never said another word. But uh, I mean, I think it, for him, it, it was two-sided. First of all, you know, that his factory now had a bit of colour in it. And secondly, it all happened without him knowing. And he's, he's a bit of a control freak, which is fair enough. It's probably a motor racing you need to be. But, um, yeah, it, it turned out years later, I found out from Lisa, his wife, that um, he came back that evening and said, that's it. 
get rid of him. I'm going to fire him in the morning. <laughs> she, she talked him down a bit. So, yeah, he wasn't happy. Well, just as well, just as well he didn't. The 98 car turned out to be a dominant car. Can, I'll tell you one, one abbreviated Ron Dennis story before EJ should tell us one. And, and of course, we, we've all got the, the utmost respect for Ron and his achievements. And, uh, uh, you know, that goes without saying. But my very, uh, in end of 95, Mika's lying in hospital in Adelaide, having had a tire failure and a very big accident. I go to dinner with Ron and Lisa and I'm on my own. And I'm sort of drowning my sorrows because I've crashed out of leading the, the, the Grand Prix, having hit the pit wall. And that, again, look, again, I, you always blame that on the software. It was yeah, again. <laughs> Let me finish the story. He won every race. Hold on. Having, having hit the pit wall. So I, I did, I'm, I'm sitting there at dinner and Ron's obviously very distracted and, 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 you know, Lisa as well, they're worried for the driver, but I'm, I'm signed to drive for the team for 96. So we're doing a sort of end of one season, beginning of a, a new start dinner together. And a friend of mine, um, a friend of Oliver's, whose name will remain uh, anonymous for the purpose of this story, but let's just say he's a, a good Irishman who likes to uh, ride bikes and build bikes, um, had shown me this, this trick called the flying napkin trick. Now, I won't go into the details of how you make the napkin fly, otherwise <laughs> this will get edited out of the show. But during the dinner, I decide I'm going to do the flying napkin trick. So I stand up from the table and I say to Ron and Lisa, do you know where the toilets are? To which, of course, they look at the napkin flying and they point over to the corner and I go to the bathroom and suddenly I sober up and think, what have I just done? You know, I have done the flying napkin trick in front of my new boss and his wife. And uh, anyway, sort of pat myself down with water, go back to the table and they're both laughing hysterically. And that may well explain that what could have had me fired, like Adrian for painting his office without permission, could have had me fired before I even started. But I stayed at McLaren for nine seasons thereafter. So those who are listening who know how you make a napkin fly will understand this story and how I did it. Those who don't, well, look, there you go, kids. It's some things you just don't need to know. Well, you've got us all in suspense now because sooner or later you're going to have to do a podcast of your own, DC. How to make napkins fly. I wouldn't, but I, actually, you've got a lot of other tricks up your sleeve. I have, I think witnessed, I have witnessed DC doing the flying napkins. Have you seen it? Yeah, and it's, I've seen it's DC. Probably, probably something. It's impressive. I've been with DC in Sochi in Russia at a Grand Prix, going to the loo where he eventually came back white as a sheet because somebody, a man in the loo, took a gun out at him because he was absolutely plastered. Uh, we won't talk about that, DC, should we? No. It was the great Nicky Lauda and Toto. We were out to lunch, the four of us. It was our dinner, wasn't it? A dinner. And I couldn't believe it. The guy was absolutely, he couldn't speak because this guy took the gun out. Anyway, I'm going to tell you my Ron Dennis story. It was before Formula One, so it must have been late 80s. And um, I was doing quite well. We'd won a couple of championships with, uh, with, with Johnny Herbert and then with uh, Jean Alessi, and things were going really well, and I was planning Formula One. Ron was super nice to me, super nice. And um, in fact, he always has been nice, but sometimes he lectures me, um, and probably rightly so. But anyway, Lisa himself came up one Sunday morning, no Grand Prix, don't ask me why, but Marie and I, for whatever reason, I'm not sure how many kids we had at that stage, probably we were trying to make one, but anyway, that's another story. But anyway, he arrived on a Sunday morning, and typical Ron, he knows how to wheedle himself, and the next thing he comes, yay, into the bedroom. 
So eventually we get dressed and we go down and we have a breakfast and we decide to go just right behind our house was the Cherwell uh, River. It was the Cherwell Boathouse. So we took a couple of punts and I had them in the punt and we were punting down the stream. And I decided, you know, I'm going to have a bit of fun because he takes the mickey out of me all the time. So anyone who's ever on a punt is a big long stick, which makes it go, it goes to the bottom of the, of the, of the river. And you take, so I got it up. And I took it out of the water and I could see Ron at the very back of it. And I gave him a whack and the next thing, straight in the water. Jesus, he had a sense of humor failure for quite a while. But eventually he wised up to it. He's, he's never, ever forgotten it. How I absolutely nearly drowned him in the Cherwell River. So that's my story with Ron. I remember him cutting your earpieces when you worked for the BBC. So we were live at Silverstone. And I can understand, like, you're always a bit mad when you're doing television, but suddenly you weren't listening to what we were all saying or listening to the director. And it was because Ron had come up behind you, Eddie, and, and, and cut the cable to your earpieces. And, uh, and, and therefore you were just completely oblivious to what was happening in the show. Well, not alone that. I was so upset. But there, there was a guy, um, BBC, were furious, absolutely wild, because it never happened to them in all of the broadcasts that someone of an, of an opposing team could come with a knife and cut the wires direct. He had to apologize to them because they were a state-funded and a state-owned body, and um, he had interfered with state-owned property. Absolutely. So, Adrian, just moving things, things along a little bit, I'm, I'm curious to know, what do you do for for hobbies? I know you go cycling. I know you're you're keen in your sailing. I know you love your music. But what I mean is, what what is it that sort of is a bubbling below the surface passion that when you eventually decide that you no longer are, are inspired by Formula One, are you suddenly going to become like? Are we going to find out you're a landscape artist and you're going to be <laughs> you know displaying like Churchill used to, or you're a naturalist and you're going to suddenly live naked in some sort of hippie commune. You know, what, what is it that Adrian does that none of us know? Well, the last is an interesting option. I hadn't thought of that one, but I'll, I'll give Don't it worry, some consideration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky enough to do what I've been passionate about. I love design. That's kind of, you know, design engineering and competitive design engineering, I think is, is a really fast, for me, I find it a really fascinating combination. Um, America's Cup sailing, you know, outside of motorsport in the in the biggest sense of the word, so including MotoGP and so rally, whatever. And where else is there big bucks um, uh, engineering competition? So man and machine, and the answer is, is is of course America's Cup. So, and it's it's a real parallel industry. So that kind of is what sparked my interest in sailing. And then along with EJ, as he said, kindly inviting me on his boat. And, and um, so forth, and that's rapidly coming up as something which I love, just the tranquility of being out at sea, lots of time and so forth. So I have a couple of really quick fire questions that DC you can help me with, because I'd like to maybe explain things like Multi-21. Do you remember the Multi-21 with Christian Horner? I want to know what happened with Bettel and why did he not accept uh, your agreement to move over? Yeah, well, look, in summary, Multi-21, it was a code to say that car number two, which was Mark at that time, would stay in front of car number one, which was Seb as he was a world champion. So it was an instruction to hold position to the end of the Grand Prix. And Seb didn't do that. He overtook Mark. And that's uh, where there was a bit of a fallout there. But Adrian can explain from being in the hot seat, 
and Adrian, you've been there over the years with many situations where drivers are falling out, and it's part of the fun, isn't it, of Formula One when you've got those, you know, design, you know, really motivated uh, individuals looking to to win the Grand Prix and fighting with their teammates. But that particular one, you know, Seb was just a little terrier, wasn't he? He was. I mean, I can't remember, but the exact details. But Seb ended up behind Mark for some reason, and he felt that wasn't fair, and therefore he had the pace, and so he just went to had an overtook him and of course Mark was then felt that he'd been holding back a bit so he because he was expecting team orders to follow so as you say that was then the usual fallout and that that kind of created a bit of friction between the two drivers for a while but they're both great people they're, they're both friends to this day um, I think you know better than I that when you're in the cockpit you, the red mist comes down the competitive instinct kicks in and, and sometimes getting a driver who's in that position to then adhere to team orders, that's not necessarily what you're thinking about. I mean, you're a complete gent, obviously, with Micker in, with Melbourne in 98, where um, the agreement there was, uh, I think Micker was on pole, David was second, but David was, you were typically the better starter, so we had an agreement where whoever got to the first corner first would then, all things being equal, go on and win the race, or, or you know, lead the race. And uh, I think you, you fancied yourself as probably getting Micker off the line. Never. So I accepted it. Never. And, and in, the, in the event, you didn't. So the cars were running one, two. Um, we had this thing called brake steer, which is a really bad name because that's what ultimately got it banned. So it's like a fiddle brake on the rear that the driver could operate as a, as a fourth pedal. And um, Micker was overusing it and getting the rear brake too hot, which I was really worried about. So I came on the radio and we had a code for because we didn't want people to know what we were doing. There was some code for, which meant basically don't don't use the, the, the fourth pedal as much. And Mick had misheard it through his Adelaide accident. His hearing wasn't very good, particularly in one ear. And um, he misheard it as come in. So so Mick appeared in the pit lane completely surprised. You obviously then went past. But, but um, because that was kind of not really Mick's fault, he couldn't blame his hearing. And then you honoured the and, and let it reverse. And... Which, you know, you were one of the, the true gents in, in Formula 1. And, and as it turned out, actually, had you not reversed that, he wouldn't have won the championship that year because it went down to the wire. So, actually, I have to come in there, DC, unless you've got something to add to that, because, you know, this fourth pedal leads me on to feel, as, as an opposing team, that is a blatant cheat. Were you cheating? We wouldn't cheat. No, it's not would. cheating. <laughs> See, of course it was cheating. Do you realise... That the, the floor on your car was not legal because it was all flexy at the front of it. It was supposed to be rigid. It was not. It is true. No. You had a flexy no. leading package on that car. Yeah, it was flexible, but that was loose. It was, it was allowed. There was no test. There was no test on the on the front stiffness of the floor. Exactly. And Eddie, just because you talk longer and louder doesn't make your opinion a fact <laughs> one thing that will live with me to my dying day that adrian said to me many many years ago is that you that he would read the rules as defined by the fia to not see what they say but to see what they don't say and that is the areas of innovation and then over time the fia may define that it has to be a certain way but when you read between the lines that's where you create opportunities where do you think that leaves Ross Braun as his interpretation about double diffusers and planks and, and crashing and taking the filter out of uh, fuel filters for 
for, for Lost Verstappen and also crashing into the, into the barrier on the last lap of um, Monaco. I mean, does that bring a new level of um, reading the rule books or how, how, what's your interpretation of that? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that some people uh, sail closer to the wind than others. And I'm not actually sure what that expression fully means because I'm not a sailor. No, but it's just he's being very <laughs> diplomatic, don't you think? Yeah, very diplomatic. <laughs> he doesn't mind what you say about Ross Braun. <laughs> well, look, anyway, you can you can uh, enjoy watching the Braun documentary to for those who are not familiar with who Ross Braun is. Uh, it's recently been released and apparently it's a good watch. So, Adrian, I'm, I'm a little bit curious of two things. One how happy you are that you never had to work with Eddie Jordan. I'm sure he tried to <laughs> persuade you to join him over the years. And I would also like to know what it was like working with a young version of me, because I was quite shy when I was younger, not, not the sort of more mature and outgoing individual that I am today. And not that quick. No. So uh, I'm not going uh, <laughs> All right. First question first. Piss off, Jordan. <laughs> first question first. So I, I kind of... Knew, I didn't really know Eddie very well. Lucky kind you. I obviously knew where he was, who he was, of course. And, and had, anyway, as I say, um, at the local pub in, in Oxfordshire um, when I was at Williams, and it was, it was a pig roast or something in the uh, Sunday lunch in the middle of the summer. And um, suddenly EJ appears in, at the slipping barbecue in the pub. And I said, what? Phillips. With Ian Phillips, who was, who, was, who I knew very well from my Nathan House, House days, who was the team principal. And uh, Eddie, yeah, what are you doing? Are you like a beer? What's, what's the crack here? And uh, it became evident that it wasn't just a coincidence. He hadn't simply turned up that day. And, and he basically said, well, you need to join, and here's a cheque for 150 grand. If oh, it was 500,000. Yeah, it was, it was 500. 500. He, he, do you know what he did? He and cheated he, on me, DC. That is true. I gave him a cheque. It wasn't signed. He didn't sign it. But you don't think I'm a complete <laughs> idiot, do you? But I didn't know you You didn't tweak that then, did you? Of course, I gave oh, him I a cheque all filled in, but no signature yeah. on it. Not bad for a starter for an Irishman, is it? That's the way it works. Anyway, he took away this cheque. He w Unknown to us, he wasn't happy with Williams. And he was negotiating with Ron. So he brought the cheque. He will, he will deny this, but he brought my cheque to Ron Dennis to show that he had an already an agreement with me and that we'd have to buy it out. So means yes. some of the money would come yes. back to my pocket, which it never did. He chiseled on me, guys. He actually yeah, defrauded me. Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, actually. It was, it was 500 yards. Right there you go. See? Truth always prevails, DC. <laughs> you should know that. An unsigned cheque is not of very much value. It's not a negotiable instrument, is that? But anyway, the problem with that, of course, is having given that cheque back to him, then he, every, for about, it doesn't do it now, finally, for about the next 20 years, every time I saw EJ, it would be, oh, I fucking own you. I own you. I, I own you. <laughs> I do own you. So, gentlemen, I think at this point, uh, I think it's important to thank our dear listeners and to remind them that they can uh, follow uh, Formula for Success on Spotify or whatever they uh, get their podcasts. And they can also find us on social media with the handle F1 for Success. Adrian, it's been an absolute privilege as always to have you on the show. I'm really sorry that you're locked in a room there with Eddie Jordan. Uh, protect yourself, be safe, and I'll see you in the new year. Adrian Newey, the most successful designer in the history of Formula One. Thank you very much for joining us on Formula for Success. 
Happy Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody. Absolutely. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.